1: Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your
0: host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Jane Healy. Jane is the author of The Secret Stealers and the Beantown Girls, a Washington Post and Amazon Charts bestseller. When she's not writing, she enjoys spending time with her family, traveling, running, cooking, and going to the beach. I love all those things, too. She joins me today to talk about her career and latest book, Good Night from Paris. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Jane. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to have you here, Jane. And I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin?
2: Let's see. So I've always wanted to write fiction my whole life, but I didn't really start taking it seriously until about 15, 20 years ago. I I left a career in high tech and started freelance writing when my daughters were born. they're 19 and 16 now and I think when your kids are born it just makes you pause and think about what else do I want to do with my life here and I, so I started writing fiction in the fringes of my life and taking workshops and I had a writer's group. And so my first novel, the Saturday Even Girls Club, uh, took me about 10 years to write and get published. So lots of rejections along the way, but and that came out in 2017. but yeah, it's been a lifelong, Goal to to write fiction. When did you start
0: thinking that? Hey, I think I might like to write fiction. Was it like way back when you were growing up,
1: or how oh yeah. It, yeah, yeah, tell me a little bit yeah? More yeah. About that.
2: Elementary school. I can't. I just obviously most authors are huge readers, and I just thought that would be the coolest job in the world. Then you like grow up and you go to college, and you, I didn't know anyone who like graduated from college and wrote novels and paid their student loans and their rent and everything else. So. I put that off to the side for a while and, yeah, ended up in high tech as a product manager, which I really enjoyed. And then um, still always had that kind of nagging of, I want to try to do this. I think I can do this. And But really didn't give myself permission to take the time until I was a little bit older and a mom and worked on it little by little.
0: I like this notion of, or I'm intrigued by it anyway, of giving yourself permission to take the time, because I think that's important for authors to to do is give themselves permission to explore what it might mean to be a writer. How did you give yourself permission to take the time?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, I think it helps if you have a supportive spouse. My husband was really supportive, and I still find it hard to to give myself permission to take take the time. Like right now, I'm promoting this new book, and I'm trying to think about working on the next thing. Your writing time is precious as an author, and it often, when you're busy, you can push it aside. But really, that's the most important thing, you know, as a writer and an author. And I think a lot of people think, especially before I was published, I was like, "Why am I doing this when I could be working on writing that pays me money? Why am I?" But but I just force myself, whether it was like a scheduling two hours on a weekend, or when the girls were asleep, I would work on a, something for an hour at night. Think. Yeah, it, it, it's a muscle and exercise and, and discipline to make yourself make your fiction writing important. And that was it, make it a priority in your life when everything, all the other crazy things that are going on in your life, you have to make time for it or that first book never would have
0: happened. Yeah. yeah, it's like anything, anything that yeah. if you want to lose weight, you want to exercise more, you want to eat, right, you've got to do all those things to achieve that goal. If you want to become a better writer, you've got to devote the time to You're putting in the reps, as I say, just doing it. I'm curious, it took you 10 years to write that first novel. What did you learn from that first experience that you were able to take through to your next next writing projects?
2: So much. I call that writing the Saturday Evening Girls Club was like, I never went to get my MFA. That was like my MFA. And I think one thing I learned is uh, at writing fiction, I thought I was a decent writer before I wrote Saturday Evening Girls Club. But. Writing fiction is a, and especially a long form novel fiction is a whole different animal and you have to be bad before you can be good. I think there's the, and I, there's this great quote by Ira Glass about how in the beginning, when you're trying to create something as a, creative person, as a writer, and you create stuff and you, your creations don't live up to your ambitions because you have really good taste and your taste is what got you into this in the first place. And so just having to go through the cycles of learning because um, it's a craft and it takes time. And I think because we all have to write to some degree in our lives, everyone thinks they can do it, including me. I thought, I can write a book, how hard can this be? And it's really hard, it's really hard every time. And that was, a. and so that book taught me a lot about uh, story structure, and shaping the narrative. And I'm very much an outliner and a planner. That's an important part of my process. Everyone's different. But yeah, I learned a ton with that first book.
0: Yeah, I love that notion of having to be bad before you can be good. And no one wants to admit it. It's difficult to admit that, hey, I could be bad at this. I remember I started taking an improv class and our teacher on day one, he's like, you're all going to stink at this. And it's like, wow, (laughs) this is a Real motivational. I thought we were going to yes and this one, but it was so because we all stunk at it at first because it is a new thing. And yeah, even though we all know how to talk and many of us came from comedy, so we knew how to make people laugh, but it's different kind of doing that in the moment. And what I'm curious about is you mentioned before joining some writers groups in those early days. What did you find most helpful to to sharpen your skills as a writer?
2: I think that one thing is like getting quality feedback and being and learning how to take that because it's hard because it's different than writing for a business or a work or a, because it's part of you on is on that page no matter what. And so having a tougher learn how to have a thicker skin and take really good constructive criticism to make yourself better and take it to the next level. And I had a couple of authors that who, who did workshops who did that for me and it was hard because I think that's another thing a lot of writers do. Like I I had written a good chunk of the Sarah Even Girls Club and I thought I was ready to go. And then I got some feedback, some very kind, constructive feedback from reputed writers and who worked as editors on the side, who did workshops. And they made me realize like I was nowhere near (laughs) finished. Like I had so much work to do. And so I think that's important. I, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. There's a lot of source, resources online. And there's a lot of writers, community writers groups. Grub Street in Boston is a big one here in Boston. And they have not too expensive one-off workshops or virtual workshops. Or they, you can work with a one-on-one w- with someone, with a critique partner. All that stuff is really important, I think, to help you up your game.
0: Yeah. And especially doing that before you start pitching it or querying agents. Yeah. I think it is important for people to know. I think a lot of people th- think, okay, I've done a couple of drafts of this. I've read it a few times. Now it's ready to go to uh, to an agent. And then I think you realize quickly that you're not going to get a lot of excitement from agents I- I- taking that approach. Most people, I'm sure there are some people out there who are have a different story, but.
2: I don't think many people have a different story. Right now. <laughs> I think that's true. And I think I think that's one of the biggest mistakes Writers make is because we're in this world where you want instant gratification, and you got this thing you work so hard on, and rather than getting it really polished and maybe getting it hiring a freelance editor or going or workshopping it or whatever, they just send it right out to agents, and then they immediately get rejected because it's agents within the first five pages can tell if the book's going to work or not. And I used to not believe that, but now I understand. Like I can read a, a manuscript and I know within the first five pages, if it's, if this thing is going to hang together or not. And and so, yeah, I think that you have to be patient. It's a learning curve. And what whatever you send out to agents should be the absolute best thing that you can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that notion of the first five pages. Actually, I had an agent tell me, read this book called The First Five Pages.
2: <laughs> nice. Oh, that was it was, it was yeah. a great
0: it was a great resource, and that person was definitely spot on because my first five pages were not not as good as they could be. Let's just say. And oh, some those, I, I went for that as
2: well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Can you share with us about Good Night from Paris?
2: So, Good Night from Paris. It's my fourth novel, but it's and it's historical fiction like my other novels. But this one is different because it's biographical fiction. The main character in the story was a a person in history in real life, and her name was Drew Leighton Tartier, and she was a Hollywood actress on The Rise in the 1930s. She was a rising star, and then she, in 1938, was performing on Broadway and met Jacques Tartier, who was a Frenchman, also an actor, and they fell head over heels in love, and she left it all behind to move with him to Paris. And... So 1939, of course, the war is going on in Europe. Jacques goes off to war and drew not really a lot of acting jobs for American women in Paris. So she ends up taking a job as essentially the first Voice of America broadcasting to the U.S. at night. She'd sleep all day and work all night on the radio to try to explain, try to get across what was really happening on the continent of Europe, trying to wake Americans up to the fact that. Their involvement in the war was an inevitability because at the time America was very isolationist. Charles Lindbergh was was a rising political star and all about America first, and um, and and she became so good at this on that the Nazis actually started broadcasting on Berlin radio that they were to execute her as soon as they occupied the country, and then she, but she kept on going from there, and from there her story just gets even more bananas. It's crazy. I learned about her story when I was researching my third novel, The Secret Stealers. And I was like, I was not intending on writing another World War II novel, to be honest, because it's a pretty crowded market in fiction right now. But I had to try to tell it. I loved her story and I had to try to pitch it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that's interesting that you came across it while doing research for your third novel. Was it just like eating at you that you had this idea that, but you had to get through this other one first?
2: Not, not so much. I was excited. The Secret Stealers was a really fun novel to write because it was more of a spy novel. It was about the women of the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA in World War II. Including Julia Child was is one of the supporting characters because she was with the OSS during the war. But I'll tell you what was eating at me. Like yeah. I, as I was, I had read about Drew in this vignette that came up in my research a couple times for the Secret Stealers, and it was this story about how after Pearl Harbor and when America was pulled into the war, a few, several months after the Germans went around France and Paris and its surrounding villages and towns and rounded up and arrested several hundred American women, expatriates still living in the country. And they said they were doing it in retaliation for the Americans arresting German women in America, which was a complete lie. So they rounded up these women, they put them on buses, and they took them to a zoo outside Paris and imprisoned them in the zoo, in the monkey house, as a matter of fact, in the zoo. And their friends and family had to pay five francs to get into the zoo and holler over the fence to talk to them and say, you know, what? Do you, and they'd tell them, like, oh, wait, can you bring me more socks or whatever, or chocolate? And, and it, I read about that incident in a couple different places. And Drew Layton was one of the prisoners, as well as a few other prominent American women. And it it had such amazing elements of comedy and tragedy, and it was so bizarre, and I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it, that I was like, I have that story has to be in a book. Like, it's just, it has to be in a novel. It's too good. And that was what was eating at me to pitch to my editors.
0: The, the truth can be stranger than fiction. Yeah. Uh, just when you think you can't hate Nazis anymore, <laughs> you read about something that is so insane. Wild's probably, definitely the better word for it, but... Uh... Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess you can't put anything past these. No. Um, but knowing that this was a real historical person, I'm sure you had to craft a narrative around her. Were you nervous doing that and making up a story for this person who has, I'm sure, relatives and maybe some people who knew her?
2: Yeah, very nervous. That's an excellent question. And so I wrote it from her perspective. It's first person. I had, I found it her letters are some of her letters from the war are archived at the u.s holocaust museum in dc and so that was a really great person in terms of figuring out her voice and then she wrote a very small out-of-print autobiography in 1946 about her time during the war and her experiences so I, i bought that off a guy on ebay for in the uk for like way too many euros and so those two primary resources really helped me shape the story because i really wanted to stick this is a fiction it's inspired by her life it's not her life a novel has to have a beginning middle end it has to entertain but i really wanted to stick to the facts as much as i could and i actually tracked down her grandson and granddaughter last year before it came out because like you said like i knew that she might have some relatives still alive um she died in her 90s about 20 years ago so she's passed on but But I just wanted to honor her story and make sure they were aware this was happening and had their blessing. And so that was, it was really good to connect with them.
0: Yeah. I mentioned the World War II fiction marketplace being somewhat crowded. It just doesn't cease to surprise me how much work there is still being written, inspired by World War II, much more so than, let's say, the Vietnam War or the the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. What is it about World War II that still captures our sort of imagination, even for younger generations?
2: I think there's a couple aspects to that. I think one of them is that We're really losing most of that generation now. My grandfather was a firefighter off the Navy ships off the coast of Europe and Africa. A lot of people have family stories of relatives that they loved that were involved in that war, and a lot of that generation has passed on now. There's not many left. So there's that kind of wanting to hold on to those memories, wanting to preserve them and learn about them. I think also with World War II, there was a it was pretty black and white. it was pretty good, much good versus evil and I and the other wars you mentioned don't have there's much more gray, I think more ambiguity about the sides, but I think with World War two it was very clear that the Nazis had to be defeated or or the world would have be a very different place today,
0: yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, All right. So I have a couple of fun questions for you. Okay. uh, Because I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more and cork their stories even further. One way I do that is through a few pop culture questions. So I'm curious, Jane, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV?
2: Oh, gosh, on TV. Jeez, I'm trying to think. It's not like I didn't watch TV. So I like in college and later years, friends, I was a really big Friends fan, (laughs) uh, of course. Before that, someone brought up the other day out of, you might be younger than me. The greatest American hero. Oh, no, no, I am not younger
0: than you. That is one of my all-time favorite shows. I love that show. As a matter of fact, I'm training for a half marathon right now. So I have a really long playlist for my long runs. The first song on that playlist is Joe Scarberry's theme from the greatest American Hero.
2: So good. It's so good. Uh, yeah. So that was one of that. That one was one of my favorites, The Facts of Light. That was another one I loved. Yeah, <laughs> so, and I, I
0: will say thank you for thinking that I'm younger than you. I don't think that's <laughs> the case, but I can pontiff. I have a Greatest American Hero sweatshirt that I wear
2: Sweet. at night. My wife, that.
0: if you look, it's funny. I was wearing, I, my wife doesn't like me to wear that sweatshirt out, outside of the house because it's got this symbol. Like, if you remember the symbol on his little super suit or whatever you call it, it's this weird symbol, and it could, it looks like it could be, A white supremacist symbol. So I wore it one day. I wore it one day to the grocery store and the the guy who was running the little checkout thing for the register was like, can I ask you, what are you wearing? What is this thing that you're wearing? (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh, it was a show from the eighties. And then I'm like, and then I'm realizing like why he might be asking me this question. I'm like, Uh-oh. oh no! It's a guy. He lost the. He. It's really funny. He loses the instructions for the suit and can't fly. And, <laughs> up and, and now I look like an idiot at a Stewart's Market in Uh-oh. New Canaan, Connecticut.
2: It's such a good show, though. <laughs>
0: I know it's by William Cat. And actually, you know who I love in that show? I wasn't <laughs> intending to go on a Greatest American Hero. For it. <laughs> Robert Culp, who's the FBI agent, who's with uh, him,
2: yeah,
0: he, and he was in like four or five Columbo's, which is one of my all-time favorite shows.
2: Ah, another excellent um, show.
0: So if, if Columbo with Robert Culp is on, I would always watch that. Yeah, always watch that. And Facts of Life is a quality show as well.
2: Yes, that was a classic.
0: What about music? What did you What did you like to listen to when you were growing up?
2: All sorts of music, really. In the in high school, I really loved like that kind of folk rock era like the indigo girls and all of that blues traveler that oh yeah kind of yeah um but i was i've always been a big u2 fan too still love you too yeah so all over the map with that stuff
0: and hey, u2 probably the band i've seen most often live
2: yeah love them
0: love them i, I actually saw them in foxborough in 92 summer of 92
2: how many Zoo,
0: I may have been at that one. <laughs> Zoo <laughs> TV funny. Outside Broadcast. Yes. It was a great, great show. I saw him three so times funny. that year. Different cities on that tour.
2: And then, did you have you read Bono's memoir yet?
0: Not only have I read it, I went to, he did a thing at the Beacon Theater in New York oh, City sorry. to launch his book tour. And it's this one-man show where he yes, is doing amazing. some... It, it was such an amazing experience. I think he's doing another run of dates in New York City because it was so popular. I'll was, bet. And it was he sang songs reimagined from from the stories of or songs of innocence or whatever the thing is called I can't remember songs of surrender, yeah um, yeah, so that, I, I was yeah I that started
2: it yeah on audiobook actually because of course I mean his voice and his, he's yeah, reading like, it
0: yeah and, and yeah, actually I will say it's his writing is very good it's very strong but it's very lyrical like it's almost poetic and reading it takes a little bit of time. Whereas listening to it, it's probably meant to be listened to, to be honest with you. like a Shakespearean play. It's meant to be heard and not read.
2: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Listening to it, I was thinking that. I'm like, I think this would be harder to read on it. It's one of of those books that just does better as an audio book. Yeah.
0: I have to ask, what is this alphabet poster you have next to you here? What is that?
2: Oh, this is the International International... Morse Code poster.
0: Oh, very neat. (laughs) Very yeah. neat. Is that from the Secret Stealers by any chance or is that? Yeah, uh... my,
2: my husband got it after the Secret Stealers? and said, this is my office that used to be a boiler room, <laughs> but I use it for webinars and podcast calls and all that kind of stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very
0: cool. Very cool. So what's life like? Kind of compare and contrast it for me, going from the world of being a product manager to now being a working author. How would you compare and contrast those two very different careers?
2: Yeah, very. It's very different. I think one of the things, I'm an introvert at heart, so I don't mind working many hours a day by myself, but I do miss that camaraderie of an office. Like that was so much fun. That's probably the part I miss most. But, and I think the hardest part of it is is just the discipline. Like right now, I'm launching this book and I'm so focused on the launch, whereas my editors and agents are like, I'm going to want to focus on the next project maybe. <laughs> so I need to like, again i need to get look over my calendar and just chunk out some time to like to start researching and working on whatever the next thing will be and it's barely an idea in my head right now but but yeah no i love it i love the research i love the process the hardest part for me is in terms of the writing process is getting that first draft down i and some people love that part of it i it's like blood from a stone for me it's really hard it's hard it's like i've done voice on my shoulder of doubt the whole time and just getting those words down at first is really tough. Also because of the research that I do and I try not to, I try to get as much in as I can in the first draft and not have to go back and check and add stuff later.
0: Any big lessons you've learned about yourself going through your own writing journey?
2: Yeah, I think that Publishing and the writing journey is persistence. And I, I gave up a few times for a while. I took a break. I had sixty-five rejections for Saturday Evening Girls Club. And it was like soul crushing. So I took a while. I took some time off and was like, I don't know if I have this in me. But but I still believe in the story. And I think that there's luck and timing when it comes to publishing. And there was this was this is Saturday Evening Girls is an immigrant story. And in twenty seventeen, immigrant stories were having A moment in the genre, and and so it finally happened for me. But I think, yeah, I think it's taught me a lot about persistence and discipline.
0: Yeah, persistence and publishing go hand in hand.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: If you could write some words of advice to your younger self and send them to your younger self in a letter, what would you? What would the older and wiser Jane tell a younger Jane?
2: Well, I think one thing I tell young writers who asked me for advice is is that thing about persistence about like you, if you stop knocking on doors if you stop trying that's when you lose that's when if you take yourself out of the game you have to and if, there is this is there is a learning curve you have to be good before you ha- you can be bad you have to be bad before you can be good that's definitely true like i didn't i think a lot of us who go into this are ambitious and really l- love literature and want to be involved and want to publish a book but there's it's a lot of work and a lot of time to create a novel that goes out into the world another one that my agent said the other day and it's so true that writing is a craft and a creative process and publishing is a business and you really need to know about both sides of it i think that's another that's really true if you want to be if you want to stay in this publishing industry and world and you have to be willing to pivot sometimes too
0: Yeah. Great advice. I love that. Writing is a craft and publishing is a business. And Mm -hmm. it is true. And you have to be aware of that business side of it, Yeah, which is why you have to do things like this and promote your book and pay attention to that.
2: And thankfully, I like, I enjoy this side of it, but I have a lot of writer friends that like, do not like public speaking, do not like talking to people. They just want to do their stuff. And I get that. I do. It's hard to strike that balance. Yeah. Oh, to that. go? I thought my camera was going to shut off. But but yeah, it's hard to strike that balance. And also, you can really get sucked into the vacuum of social media and all these distractions. To your at the you, at the end of the day, the next, the thing that's going to keep your career going is the next book project. So yeah, the social media balance is hard too in terms of promotion and connecting and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, you got to learn TikTok.
2: Oh no, <laughs> I'm out. What? What? No,
0: <laughs> I know. We've been talking to Jane Healy, author of Good Night from Paris. Jane, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they learn more about you? Do you have a website or some social media that you want to share with us?
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm a, my website is janehealy.com, H-E-A-L-E-Y. And if you sign up for my mailing list, I do a monthly web, live webinar. It's called Historical Happy Hour that I then post on YouTube and convert to a podcast. And I interview. A historical author friend about their latest novel that's that's recently been published. I started it during the pandemic, so all my past episodes are on YouTube and podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And then Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, at Healy Jane, or Facebook is Jane Healy Books. So yeah, they can connect with me all those ways.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love that idea of a historical happy hour podcast. That sounds like fun.
2: Yeah, it's been really fun and rewarding because I, it's like, you can only talk about your own books so much. It's nice to promote other people's projects and books and stuff. And this month is Alka Joshi, who wrote The Henna Artist, which I loved. And she just wrote the concluding third novel in that trilogy. And it was really good. The Perfumist of Paris. So I'm looking forward to talking to her.
0: Very cool. Jane, thank you for stopping by uncorking a story and letting me uncork yours.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: This was great. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.